I'm always excited to preach and teach the Word of God. In fact, when I'm preaching, it just seems like that may be the one moment in time where all the world is right. I can't really explain it, but I guess that's how I know it's what I'm called to do. Um, but I really get excited when we get into the crucifixion and resurrection, which we're right on the doorstep of this morning. But uh, just by way of review as we work our way there, as I say every time, for those that may be listening online for the first time, or maybe in those here for the first time, uh, the Gospel of Mark looks at Jesus as the suffering servant as prophesied by Isaiah. We're going to say a lot of that today. But uh, he's more concerned, Mark is, with the works of Christ instead of the words of Christ. It's not that he negates the words of Christ. It just, if you read the book of Mark, it's constantly moving from one event to another. And, uh, one healing or one exorcism or uh, the training of the disciples or the raising of the dead. And so, um, and by the way, on that note, I've, I found it really interesting in one of my uh, classes this semester, uh, we've been looking at uh, other historical sources outside of the Bible to try to defend the authenticity of the Bible. And I love that kind of stuff. And I didn't realize this, but every available known secular source from this time in history attributes miracles to Jesus, even the ones that hated him. Now, they didn't say that he was the Son of God working by the power of God. They accused him of witchcraft and all kinds of different things, but they didn't deny the miracles. Pretty amazing to me. But uh, we've seen all these things. Uh, And ever since chapter 11, we have been in crucifixion week. But the past few weeks specifically, we've been here at the Lord's table. And we've looked at the significance of the Lord's Supper. We've seen Christ as our Passover lamb. At this time, Judas is already a part of the group, and he's on his way uh, to get the Romans to come and arrest Jesus. And our text today is super important because they're on their way to Gethsemane. And our text this morning is Jesus' final instructions to the disciples. In a sense, it's his final words. It's not his... Uh, you know, literal last physical words, but it's his last instructions to the disciples uh, before his arrest. And so that's what, I mean, this is just super important. There's been a lot of uh, great books written, a lot of studies done on the famous last words of dying people. And I, I think your last words say a lot about who you are, about what's important to you, about what you believe. And so when we think about the concept of Jesus' last words, we better perk up and pay attention. And so that's really what we're going to look at, Jesus' last words this morning. He knew His arrest and execution was near, and so He left His uh, parting instructions with His disciples. With that in mind, let's read our text, Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 26. And when they had sung in Him, they went into the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said unto them, All you shall be offended. That simply means to stumble there. You shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I shall smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. And Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, they sh- thou shalt deny me thrice. But he spake the more vehemently, If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we love you. We're so thankful for this opportunity to be together. And I just pray that you fill me, your Holy Spirit, into me as sin and self, and overcome any of my shortcomings this morning, God, that you would be glorified and magnified, that I would say what you want me to say, that I wouldn't say what doesn't need to be said, but Lord, that ultimately your word would be preached and Christ would be magnified and hearts would be changed. God, we give these things to you and we're thankful for who you are. In Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. So this morning we're looking at the thought of the last words of Jesus. And the question I hope to deal with this morning is, what all important themes does Jesus highlight in his last words to his disciples? And I've got five things this morning. I mean, really, when you read, I I know, um, and even Derek mentioned this morning, sometimes we, we tend to read the Bible lightly, and we tend to skip over the magnitude of the words that we're reading. There's so much in this text that if I even tried to preach it all, we'd be here a long, long time. But there's so many things here, and I think that Jesus hits on so many of the major themes of the Bible in this one statement that He makes to His disciples, and I want to point them out briefly this morning. But I believe the first theme that we see here in the last words, the last instructions of Jesus is the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 26. When they sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And Jesus saith unto them, All you shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. Now, now really, get in your mind the context in which he's talking here. Because the world, within the next few hours is going to enter into the darkest moments of human history. The murder of the Son of God. The sun will cease to shine. The earth will quake. The disciples are going to flee for their lives. That's the time they're about to enter into. So no wonder Jesus would give them some instructions about what they're about to face. And in this statement we see... The sovereignty of God, the the reign of God over all the universe, the control, the power uh, that He possesses. Because in this statement, Jesus looks them in the face and says that God is in control of everything that's about to happen. (laughs) I love this because uh, right here when He says, it is written, verse 27, when Jesus said, it is written. And by the way, this is a great study tool when you read the Bible. When you read the New Testament, or even sometimes in the Old Testament, it's re- but it's always referring to Old Testament Scripture. When Jesus said, it is written, you know He's about to quote something from the Old Testament. And sometimes you read this in the Old Testament, and it's referring to other Old Testament passages. And in this particular text, when He, when he says, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, that is a direct quote from Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7. And what we cannot miss here, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, what we cannot miss here is this statement where it says, I will smite the shepherd. Who is the I that smites the shepherd? Is it the Romans? Is it the Jews? It's God the Father. And when you go back and you read... And I encourage you to do that. Go back and read Zechariah 13, most specifically verse 7, where God Himself is speaking. And the way it is worded, it says, Awake, O sword, and smite my shepherd. He is 
slaying his only begotten son. God is in control of everything that they're about to face. Um, And really, when you think about this truth, now we're going to get to this a little bit deeper in a minute, but uh, people don't like this thought that God is somehow a cosmic child murderer. I've actually heard somebody phrase it like that. Um, In fact, what's interesting about this, and I, I was thinking the other day, I've heard this so much, I could put together a compilation video of both atheist and so-called Christians, even pastors, that literally hate the idea that God slayed His Son. They can't stand it. They, they, they tense up when you talk about it. But without this, there is no salvation. And if you don't believe in this death from God the Father to the Son, you're going to have to get past a lot of verses, both Old and New Testament. I Think about specifically Isaiah 53 and verse 4. We're going to go here a little bit later. But it says, Surely He, talking about Christ, hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, slain of God. What we just read about. Uh, smitten of God and afflicted. Uh, down further in that same chapter of Isaiah 53 and verses 10 and 11, it said, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise Him or to break Him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. It says right there that God slayed him. God smote him. God put him to grief. He laid on him our iniquity. And so it's it, so crystal clear there. I think about even the picture of Abraham and Isaac. God commanded Abraham to go take Isaac and sacrifice him. Well, God stopped him, but he said that he would provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. Speaking of Christ, he spared Abraham's son. He didn't spare his son. We've seen this. We think about um, this truth is found in the New Testament. Acts 2 and verse 22 through 23. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved to God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. You have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. It says here that Christ was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Not simply that he knew this was going to happen, but that he determined that it would happen. And then it was carried out by the sinful free actions of men. Like I said, I can't connect all those things, but I'll preach both of them because they're true. But ultimately, God was in control of it, and even in their wickedness, they were accomplishing the plan of God. Uh, Revelation 13, verse 8, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him, whose names are not written in in the life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. This was something pre-planned. It wasn't God's plan B. Um... Now, when we think about the absolute control that Jesus was in during this whole time, it's really amazing. 
And I'm just going to hit these and move on, but we could do a deep study of this, I'm sure. But even from the beginning, we read about it, and Mark wasn't as clear about it as some of the other gospel writers. But whenever they're sitting at the table, just before they partake of the Lord's Supper, um, Satan enters into Judas, and Jesus looks at him, and he says, What you do, do it quickly. Now here would be a good food for thought. You think he was talking to Judas, or was he talking to Satan? Y'all study that out and get back to me. (laughs) The bottom line is, even he was in control of his own death. He was in control of his own betrayal. Even backing up further in the scriptures, talking about the twelve, he said, Have I not chosen you twelve and one of you is a devil? He was enacting the plan of God. Uh, When we think about um, when the soldiers, the Roman soldiers come to arrest him, And they ask him if he's Jesus of Nazareth. And when he says, yes, we don't know exactly what he did. Perhaps he revealed himself like he did on transfiguration. I don't know. But they fell down like dead men. He had to give them permission to arrest him. Here, come on, put the shackles on. He had to give him permission to even arrest him. When I think about uh, when he was talking to Pilate, and Pilate basically told him, He said, you you do realize that I've got the power to set you free. I've got the power to save your life. And Jesus looks at him and he says, you wouldn't have any power if it wasn't given to you from on high. (laughs) Wow. That's in John 19 and verse 11. And even on the cross, when it came time for death to take him, Christ raised his head. He looked death in the eye and probably winked and said, it is finished. And he gave up the ghost. He said he laid down his life. No man took it from him. He could have called 12 legions of angels to come and destroy the world and set him free, and he didn't do it. And what a great encouragement this this had to have been for his disciples if they only had ears to hear. And what a great encouragement for his children that he is working everything for our good. You can rest assured that if the Lord can use the greatest act of evil and suffering in history to bring about the greatest act of glory and victory, he can use our trials for the good and his glory. And now I know that, I'm going to say this and I'll move on. I know sometimes we... We read about the disciples and we read about Peter here and how once again he inserted his foot into his mouth. And we joke about that. But I want to tell you this, we've, got, we've actually got more to work with than they did. Yeah, they walked with Jesus, but they didn't know who he was. They did, I mean, I, I, I want to say this, I believe the disciples were saved from the moment that Jesus said, come follow me, and they did. I believe that. Albeit they, they had a cloudy understanding of who he was. They didn't really know who he was until the resurrection. We've got the whole thing, Genesis to Revelation. We've got the context. We've got the background. We've got the foreground. Uh, we've got the quotes. We've got information they didn't have. And we still make some of the stupid mistakes they did. I mean, I know that we read the Bible and we laugh at them. Sometimes I wonder if they can see us from heaven. And I don't know that. The Bible just is silent on that matter. But if they can, sometimes I wonder if they're like, come on, man, you've got it right there. Chapter and verse, what's wrong with you? So don't get too cocky, okay? You know, some people said, I'm, I'm going to get up to heaven and have a word with Adam and Peter and whoever else. They might just have a word with you. But what a comfort to know. 
Listen, if God can be in control of this from beginning to end, there is nothing we will ever face that is outside the hand of God. (laughs) That's a comfortable place to be. And even the things that are out of your control, they're not out of His control. He might put more on you than you can bear, but He'll never put more on you than He can bear. We see the sovereignty of God in this instruction from Jesus to His disciples. He used His last words to teach them about the sovereignty of God. But then secondly, I believe Jesus instructs them on the surety of the Scriptures. Look at verse 27. And Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee." But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. And Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this day, even this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. But he spake the more vehemently, If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all. As we mentioned before, Jesus is quoting here from Zechariah 13 and verse 7. But understand that Peter isn't only arguing with Jesus here, which is crazy enough, but he's arguing with Bible prophecy. He is arguing with Holy Writ about things that God said would happen. And so let's just make a hypothetical here. If Peter had kept his word about not forsaking Jesus... He would have made a liar out of God, and thus the cross would have been meaningless, and the resurrection would have never happened. And I know that I've often heard, I've even heard sermons on the text about how Peter followed Jesus after his arrest. He followed Jesus afar off, and they kind of make an application there. And I'm not going to throw rocks for doing that, but the truth of the matter is, he shouldn't have been following at all. He said, I'll smite the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter. And so, let God's Word be true, and every man a liar. Peter did exactly as Jesus and the Old Testament prophets said he would, because you can trust the Word of God. And it may seem subtle. I told you there was a lot in this text. It may seem subtle, but here's something else you can't miss. Jesus, on the spot here, makes them another promise... And another prophecy that actually gets fulfilled later in the book of Mark. In fact, just very quickly, we're not but two chapters away. Go over to Mark chapter 16. Keep in mind, in verse 28 of our text in 14, he says, But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. Let's let's read about this in Mark chapter 16, uh, beginning verse 5. This is after the resurrection. It says, "...and entering into the sepulchre, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, this angel, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he saith unto them, Be not affrighted. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. And then it says, But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee." We just read about that, didn't we? He said, Go before you into Galilee, there you shall see him, as he said unto you. I love this on so many levels, and I cannot help but think that angel was grinning from ear to ear. Because he says, Tell your disciples, and Peter, as if Peter wasn't one of the disciples, that he's not here, he's risen, just like Jesus promised. And then he said, 
He goes before you into Galilee. There you shall see Him as He said unto you. He did exactly what He said He'd do. He'll always do exactly what He said. You can trust the Word of God, and if you can't trust the Word of God, what can we trust? What is there that we can trust that has a greater resume than the Word of God who has survived the most uh, stringent of scrutiny? It's true. We can trust it. In His final words, Christ reminds them they can trust His Word, and we can too. But then number three, I believe Jesus uses His last words here to tell them about the substitutionary death of Christ. We can go back to our text in Mark 14. But it says um, in verse 27, uh, All you shall be offended because of me this night, for I have written... Uh, For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. This is talking about his death, his crucifixion, his substitutionary atonement. And I want to explain to you that, and and maybe one of these days we'll, that'll be one of those subjects where we'll get the board out or the monitor and we'll talk about exactly what Christ accomplished on the cross. But I I just say in passing that Christ didn't just die for an opportunity. He, He didn't just die Uh, for an open door or to set some kind of example. He died to save sinners. He died for a people. He died for our sin in a substitutionary way. Uh, 1 Peter 2, verses 24 through 25, "...who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed." For you were a sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Uh, Ephesians 5 verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. By the way, I find it interesting. He is being slain both as a sheep and a shepherd. He is the Passover lamb, but he's also a shepherd. And we see this language here in John chapter 10, among many other places. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Uh, We could go back and read Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 12. Isn't it amazing that Isaiah could write with such clarity about the death of Christ 700 years prior to that event? And it reads as clearly and even more clearly than the gospel writers did. Some people have called it the gospel of Isaiah. It's because it was written by an eternal God who's not subject to time. Um, we could go back and read that. In fact, let's, let's do that. We've got time. Hold your place here in Mark. I can't let this opportunity pass by um, <clears throat> to read Isaiah 53, at least from about verse 4. But um, as I mentioned, Mark is, is concerned with Jesus, the suffering servant, and it's really a, in many ways a parallel book to many of the themes in the book of Isaiah. And we see that most clearly here in Isaiah 53. Understand as we read this that Isaiah wrote this literally about 700 years prior to this happening. And I've got a video I could show you of a man walking around um, in Jerusalem. And, you know, every Sabbath, every, well, every Jewish Sabbath, um, they will read through the Old Testament Scripture. And they just pick up where they left off every time. But the Jewish rabbis skip over Isaiah 53. 
And they don't even know it because, you know, they don't have chapter breaks. They read it just like it was originally written. And so they never read that. They, they, don't, they will not allow them to read this in the synagogues. And this man was walking around, and he was interviewing people. And he said, without telling you what I'm reading, I want you to tell me who it's talking about. And he would read to these Jews this text from Isaiah 53, and they would say, that, that's talking about Jesus. That's talking about Jesus. What if I told you this came from the book of Isaiah? Mm-mm. It's too clearly talking about him. Look at Isaiah 53. Let's begin in verse 4. He said, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. That seems like that language in Mark, doesn't it? We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. By the way, verse 10 is talking about the resurrection. You can't prolong the days of a dead person unless they're no longer dead. And so we could get into that later, but... It said, He shall see the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressor, uh, transgressors. And he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. <laughs> by the way, that's talking about his reign. Dead people can't rule and reign. Uh, but, I mean, that, to me, Isaiah 53, and you can go back to Mark. Isaiah 53 is one of my favorite texts in all of the Bible. It's so beautiful. It's so powerful. It's so clear. It can't be denied. We see the substitutionary death of Christ here. I believe that the Lord took His last words to instruct His disciples about that. But two more, and I'll be done this morning. I, I believe that Jesus used his last words, number four, to tell them about his supreme victory over death. Verse 28, perhaps one of my favorite quotes of Jesus. (laughs) He said, But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. And we read about that fulfillment in Mark 16. But what amazes me here is just how calmly and matter-of-factly he said he's going to raise from the dead. After he's dead, after he's been killed and murdered, he's going to rise from the dead and I'll meet you in Galilee. And when I read, it it kind of reminds me in the book of Genesis. If you read the Genesis account about all the amazing things that God did, he spoke the universe into existence. And then almost as a parenthesis, it said, he made the stars also. (laughs) And when I read this, listen, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm not trying to be facetious. I know this is my sanctified imagination running wild with me. 
But I mean, just the way he words this is just so powerful. It's like an afterthought. After I raise for the dead, I'll meet you on Galilee. And um, it's almost as like if I tell Leah, hey, I'm going to run some errands. I'll be back in a little bit. I'm going to raise for the dead. I'll see you all in Galilee. Um, it's like it was on his to-do list. And, you know, once again, this is my sanctified imagination, but I thought about it like this. What if somebody, let's say he makes the grand entrance into Jerusalem earlier during crucifixion week and everybody's all happy and loving towards him and they try to make plans with him. Hey, Jesus, what are you doing on Sunday? Uh, well, let me, well, I'm actually going to rise from the dead that morning, but I can get with you that afternoon. I mean, that's just how matter-of-factly he's talking about this. He's going to rise from the dead. It, was, it wasn't an if, it was a when. And when, when Jesus speaks these words, it comes from a place of absolute power and authority. If anybody else said that, we would think they were crazy and we would be right. And we would go the other way. Just like if we heard talking animals. What he talked about this morning. When, what makes Christianity different from every religion in the world? There are several things, but if I had to bullet down to two, it would be this. In every other religion... The people have to try their hardest to appease their God with a little g. Christ appeased God on our behalf. In every other religion, their God is not a God at all because they're dead. They're imagined in the minds and created by the hands of sinful men and women. Our God is alive. He arose from the dead three days after His crucifixion with total victory over death, hell, and the grave. That's something to get excited about. Amen. That's right. That's worth worshiping. That's worth serving God. That's worth giving Him your life for. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. What a God. What a Savior. I, uh, I was standing at the graveside at Mima's funeral. And, um, you know, they told me to say whatever you want to. And I just, I could have said a lot of things about Mima. I could have, I could have talked about story. I could have done a lot of things. But I only felt liberty to do two things. And that was read from 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, about the dead in Christ rising first. And, and then I prayed. And one thing about me, if you haven't figured it out, I'll just tell you, like, I, I don't like being fake. What you see is what you get. If I can't do something, I'm probably going to tell you. And one thing that I don't, I don't think I could fake cry if I had a gun to my head. But sometimes it hits me and I can't help but cry. And man, it hit me when I was praying. I mean, this thought came to me. I mean, as I was praying. And that is this. That even our grief in moments like that is proof of His goodness. Because if it wasn't for the blessings of God, we wouldn't even have anything worth grieving over. I mean, think about that. The reason we grieve over somebody we've lost in death is because they were a gift from God who was a tremendous blessing in our life. And it hurts to miss them. Isn't it it wonderful to have people and things in your life that it hurts to miss? What a God that even our our grief is evidence of His goodness. (laughs) But it's just so powerful because He rose from the dead. We're going to rise too. That body we put in the ground on Wednesday is nothing but a shell. In soul, she's with Him now. She knew the Lord. In body, it's in the ground. And one of these days, that trumpet's going to blow. And the saved from all over the world, the bodies are going to get up. 
And that soul and body are going to come together and we're going to have a glorified body in heaven. I can't even imagine what all that entails, but it's going to be good. It's going to be good. We see the supreme victory over death, hell, and the grave. That's what he decided to tell his disciples, and they didn't even have ears to hear it. But I believe lastly, and I'll, I'll be done with this, I believe he used, I believe Jesus used his last words to teach them about the saving grace of God. Look at verse 29. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. I'm just glad he's humble. Verse 30, it says, And Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in the night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. But he spake more vehemently, If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all. I like what Tolbert said. Tolbert said, If they couldn't be sure they wouldn't betray him, how could they be sure they wouldn't deny him? You remember when they're sitting at the table and the Lord said, One of you betray me? And they're like, Lord, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? If they couldn't be sure they weren't the one that's going to betray him, how can they be sure they wouldn't deny him? <laughs> Just silly. But I'm thankful that I believe we, we see the saving grace of God in this. And, and Mark doesn't go in as much detail as some of the other gospel writers. But I'm thinking specifically of the book of, uh, book of Luke here. But in this same companion passage, that, this is when Jesus tells him, uh, Peter, Satan has sought to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail thee not. And then he said, and when you're converted, strengthen the brethren. I don't, converted here doesn't mean be saved. I don't believe that. It just simply has the idea of a turnaround. And he definitely did that. And man, what grace... He knew what Peter was going to do. He knew he was going to curse him. He knew he was going to deny him. And he loved him anyway. He loved him anyway. He failed God. And we've all failed God. Have you not? I failed him. Everybody fails God. But here's the thing. In this series of events, we see two major failures of God. We see the failure of Judas and we see the failure of Peter. Peter repented, Judas didn't. And in that sense, we're all in the same boat. We fail God. You're going to fail God. You have failed God. We could never live up to His perfect standard. That's why He had to come and die and live the perfect life we could never live and die the death in our place. That's why He had to do it. He loves us anyway. God delights in mercy. You would just repent and believe. You would have forgiveness. You would have cleansing. Uh, you would be made in a right relationship with God. Because the truth is, we've all sinned against God. The question is, will you repent and trust Christ or not? That's it. Christ uses His last words to instruct His disciples about the saving grace of God. And when it comes my time to die, and when it comes your time to die, if we have taught our family... If we have been an example to our family that testifies of the sovereignty of God, the surety of the Scriptures, the substitutionary death of Christ, the supreme victory over death, hell, and the grave, and the saving grace of God, we can consider it a life well lived. I wonder what your... If you have the opportunity, not everybody does, but if you have the opportunity to know that your death is coming and to give some final words to your family, what would they be? What would they be?
Truth is, your words mean very little if your life hadn't matched it to that point. What an awesome, awesome thing to be able to look into the last words of Jesus, the last instructions to His disciples.